0: You know, you have to be humble and you have to continue to want to improve. And you look at the best writers out there, whether they're in business journalism or or writers from history, and they approach it, you know, like, like their job.
1: I'm Ian Harvey from New York City, and you're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast-track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients.
2: Today's guest is Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia, and he's joined Matt Fizzell, CFP, to discuss financial media and how to break into that as a career path as a new planner. Up next, I'll discuss finding your niche, publishing trustworthy and accessible content, the value of sharing your expertise to the wider public, and more. But first, this episode is sponsored by Solving for Retirement Longevity can be exceptionally challenging, yet home equity is often overlooked. Don't leave your client's largest asset dormant, it can be the missing piece of the puzzle. Finance of America Reverse is the number one wholesale reverse mortgage lender and leader in home equity product innovation. They've partnered with the FBA to help advisors integrate the strategic utilization of housing wealth for better client outcomes and to provide tools for getting to work on retirement with a truly comprehensive plan. For the official FBA Reverse Mortgage course, one-on-one consultations, Or insights on retirement trends, sign up at yourretirementstrategies.com.
1: All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in today. Today I have Caleb Silver, who is the editor in chief at Investopedia, joining the podcast to talk with us a little bit about financial media and its viability as a career path as a financial planner. Caleb is currently serving as the vice president for the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing. He's a former executive producer at CNN Money and also a former senior producer for The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Thanks for joining us today, Caleb. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm so curious, you know, when I was reading your bio, um, you actually started out in producing wildlife documentaries, what what made you shift to financial and business news?
0: Well, wildlife and uh, businesses are very similar, aren't they? Now, I'm what you left out is I'm currently the editor in chief of Investopedia, where I've been for four and a half years. But you're right, going from being a wildlife documentary producer in New Mexico and South America to you know covering Wall Street and covering the the world of investing and money was a pretty big shift, but it. it happened kind of organically because I went to graduate school in New York at New York University's uh, Carter Institute for Journalism for my master's degree um, after I had done some wildlife documentaries because I wanted to become a better storyteller. And that was happening in the late 90s when the Internet bubble was just starting to get frothy and and companies like Netscape and Amazon and uh, and others and Yahoo were just kind of blowing up into these big uh, companies of the future. I started uh, shooting as a cameraman for Bloomberg TV, which was just growing, and I, and I did some, uh, some camera work for CNBC as well. So I got introduced to the financial world as I was in graduate school, and I was making money as a cameraman on the side. Eventually, I got an internship at Bloomberg in about uh, 97, 98, when I was able to document the growth of the internet world, and, and that really threw me right into the deep end of business journalism where I've been for 23 plus years. And that's such an interesting time to be coming in, you know, right when the internet's
1: starting to explode and this whole new format of delivering content. What have you seen, you know, really change in what you do on a daily basis with this advance in technology?
0: Well, I started out, as I said, as a cameraman, I I bought myself a a television camera in my early 20s because I wanted to make documentaries. So I started out on the technical side uh producing and shooting news um i then moved into you know being more of a tv producer and working in a control room so I, my my evolution came through you know a deep dive into business journalism working at bloomberg which is a you know a very strict um and very good business news organization working in in tv newsrooms as a news gatherer as a producer and then becoming like the director of business news for cnn where i was in control of tv programs so i i started out on the broadcast side then got into the online video side. And now at Investopedia, which is really not a news site, although we do some news, it's a very different mentality. If you think about news like CNN and Bloomberg as, as push mediums, where they're pushing content at you, extra, extra, read all about it. Investopedia, because so much of our traffic comes through search, is a pull medium where people are we're pulling readers in because they're finding us through Google or Bing or other search engines because they're trying to learn about investing. So I went from pushing content to pulling content on the digital side.
1: That's such a, a fascinating concept. And I've never really you know, thought about it like that. Um, you know, much like you said, when, when I see headlines or when our clients see headlines, it is that push media, you know, where they're trying to get you to tune in and likely make you feel you know, fearful of what's happening in the world. Um, why is taking that opposite approach, like you said, with the pull media, very much like what you're doing at Investopedia? Why is
0: that so important in today's world? Because there's so much content out there, you know, we we're, we're doing a podcast right now. There's something like six or seven hundred thousand podcasts out there already, um, and there's entire networks, right? So there's that. There's personal blogs. Uh, everybody has one. There's, of course, the social media platforms, um, and then your own company's website. So there's so many ways to get information out there, and news organizations, obviously. Uh, got a huge footprint there, but so has everybody else. So everybody's pushing content out there, trying to get eyeballs and trying to get your attention. Investopedia and our brother and sister companies at Dot Dash, which we're a part of, are in the business of answering people's questions and and pulling them in through having the best content that answers the very specific question that they have. So the internet um, has become very vertical in the last 10 years. Facebook and, and Google made it that way. Uh, so that Facebook is giving you what you want in your feed. Google uh, is giving you answers and already knows kind of what your search query is and is very specific. The internet became very vertical. And for people that are seeking information, not waiting to have it blasted at them, we have a very powerful platform to do that with over uh, 23 million users on a monthly basis. How do you go about like making
1: that content that's impactful, but still general enough that you can have such a large user base?
0: Well, it helps to be 21 years old. So Investopedia is 21. In internet years, that's like 210 years old. So we've been around since 1999. That helps. We have a brand that people trust and that trust has been built over those two decades. Uh, That's very helpful too. We also have a uh, a lot of backlinks from very influential sites. So not only do we have a lot of readers, we have a lot of Big influential sites, whether they're .edu sites or .gov sites or um, .org sites, that link back to us for our definitions. We built a, uh, a platform with thirty thousand articles on the site, including something like ten or twelve thousand financial and investing definitions. So, having that as a baseline is a great place to start. But then we spend a great deal of money and effort every day, every week, every year, improving that content to make it better for our readers. The better that content is and the more uh, trustworthy it is and the more authority we have as a site, the easier it is for us to, to continue to grow our audience. And we've been fortunate to be able to do that. Not a lot of publishers and not a lot of individuals that have blogs can invest as much as we do in improving their content. They just have to get it out there. We spend most of our time improving content rather than trying to push a lot of new stuff out.
1: How can you know a small firm or a new planner like myself take what you've done at investopedia and help leverage that to grow our career and grow our platform
0: that's a great question well you're not going to compete with us if you try to do financial definitions on your own blog we just have a lot of them and there's no point but i, I look at a lot of advisors and planners that are out there that have big social media presences you take anyone from a josh brown who's um you know probably the most influential advisor we rank in that on the investopedia 100 writes every single day plus he has a youtube channel plus he's on cnbc every day right that's the very sort of top of that mountain but then you have other people that are grinding it out every day but they found they found a specific voice and a specific topic that suits their expertise and they don't try to do everything they just try to do their expertise very well and i think about folks um that that are out there Like Justin Costelli is an advisor who creates a lot of media, but he's all about empowering other advisors, especially young ones, to grow their practice and serve their customers better. That's his particular passion. Uh, Tyrone Ross Jr., a friend of ours, a friend of the site, is very passionate about empowerment, financial empowerment for all communities, especially low-income communities. But he's also super passionate about cryptocurrency. So he's found his unique uh, angles where he can get his messages out. They're doing some great work because they focused on what they're really good at and then they've amplified their content across platforms.
1: You said you have all of this content. You have you know, 30,000 posts and you have a giant definition library, which is honestly my favorite part of Investopedia. You know, we deal with writer blocks all the time in our firm, on our blog. What does that content development process look like
0: within your group and on that level of scale? Sure. Um, when you mean content blocks, do you mean how we structure our content Uh, in each document or the writer block in the metaphysical sense of the word?
1: Uh, The metaphysical sense. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's a great question. Well, it helps that we get most of our, uh, most of our traffic through search. So people are coming to us with a very specific question in finance and in health, which are two of the key areas in Go- that Google pays a lot of attention to, right? There's two very important things, your money and your health. And in fact, they have a thing called YMYL, your money, your life. That's part of their editorial review process for financial sites. So they're very strict about you know, who they rank and who they don't based upon whether the, that publisher is answering the user questions. So we get feedback from the content we have on the site, but we also look at what, where search trends are growing. And we have this way because we have a lot of content, not on, only on our site, but across the dot dash universe, where we can look at search intent and search growth for what people are actually looking for uh, around big stories. Like I said, we don't do a lot of news, we do some. We do the stories around the news to help you make sense of it. And we have a lot of content that's educational in nature. So even in the event of a, a China-US trade war, we have a lot of content around tariffs, but we're looking for specific queries by users and mass. We have to look at, you know, Are there 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 people looking up a certain topic? And what are the keywords that they're looking? And do we have content that matches that? If we do, let's improve that. If we don't, let's go create that content. So here's a good example. The CARES Act, uh, the Stimulus Act was just passed. We obviously didn't have an article on the CARES Act, but we got one out right away. Now, we didn't get the best article in the world out. We got the basics of it out. But then we keep adding to it based upon keyword interest. And based upon what's spiking in the news to make sure that we're, we're capturing the entire uh, galaxy around the CARES Act to, so the reader who comes to that article can learn about it and they can learn about anything else related to it, whether it's an advisor looking to apply it to their practice or whether that's an in- individual looking for PPP loans or, or getting their stimulus check. We have all that aspect, but we build it and grow it over time. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And, you know, that's such a a great point, you know, and I'm curious when that when that first happened, right, the CARES Act was passed and it's going out there and there's this rush for information. How do you decide like, okay, this isn't perfect, but it's good enough and we'll come back. But like, what is that line in the sand that
0: says, okay, we can ship it now? By simply asking yourself um, what you might type into Google, which is something like, What is in the CARES Act or how do I get a PPP loan? If we are not answering that question in the first or second paragraph or or high up in our content and making sure that we're really responding to the query, then we know it's not good enough. But if we're hitting the main points um, up top so that we are the natural answer of that question, we feel like it's okay to ship, so to speak. But we put a lot of work into those articles, and we we may have touched that article 150 times since we first published it after the passage of the CARES Act.
1: Right. And I think too, like, that's just a inherent natural fact of the financial world, right? Things are always changing. Who knows when the tax code's going to change, who knows, you know, what investments are going to be performing well or whatever. So how does revisiting those topics and updating those articles, how does that help your team, you know, just from a workload
0: standpoint? Each one of our editors uh, controls a vertical or several verticals of content. So we have a trading and investing uh, senior editor. His name is James Chen. Uh, He's a real expert in in trading and options and forex. So we have a lot of content in that area. He basically sits atop thousands of articles that are under his domain, and he has some editors that work with him and expert writers and expert uh, editors, too, that are that contract with us that are constantly looking over these articles plus we have an expert review board across our entire library of content that reviews our content and gives us a thumbs up or a thumbs down if they give us a thumbs up that means that they think that article is up to snuff that is as good as it could possibly be if they give us a thumbs down we go back and improve it until they until they uh, give us a thumbs up and then we stamp that on our content to let our users know not only was this written and edited by experts, it was reviewed by an expert. And here are all our bios. So that's how they manage it. And so that editor has thousands of pieces under his uh, purview. He probably looks at the ones with the highest traffic um, and the most interest and the ones that are really bubbling up in the news right now most frequently and make sure that he has a process for assigning those out to make sure that they get improved Updated and republished with pertinent information. That's kind of how that workload works. And then there's the news part of it. When there's something new that pops out, or, or let's say that my trading editor is looking at you know new trading patterns in the S and P five hundred or in oil, we may do new articles based on what's happening in the world. But we're constantly improving what we already have.
1: Just from a you know a time commitment standpoint, for anyone who's just getting started in writing, it's a lot easier to go back and revamp and update and upgrade your articles versus trying to write
0: a new article every week am i right it's uh, it's true and but also when Putting the pressure on yourself to write a new article every week is, is no way to really enjoy the process and, and get it going. But if you're trying to create a blog, if you're trying to create a media and, and, and you're an advisor or a planner and you're trying to establish yourself as a brand, you kind of have to write every day or you have to write every other day and be in touch with your audience. And it doesn't have to be war and peace every day. It can be, hey, I just saw this cool chart or I just learned this interesting thing. Here's a link to it. Back with more tomorrow. And sometimes you're feeling more and you want, uh, you know, you got more words in you, and you want to get them out. But you've got to get into this practice where writing is a part of the process and it's a part of your daily routine, um, just like everything else that you do in your practice. If you're trying to establish yourself out there as a as a brand.
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes, too, I'm guilty of this for sure. You know, we think that what we're writing about is too simple or that. People will just think it's boring because everyone should know this. Do you, do you have any data or insight as to if there is such a thing as too simple for an
0: article? No, we. some of our best performing articles are our most simple articles. And that's because we have users, I would say, 18 to 80 on our site from all over the world. So you can't take your audience for granted. And even, even your more sophisticated audience looks back our most sophisticated audience looks at some of our most fundamental content to make sure they have an understanding of it. I'm the editor-in-chief, and I'm constantly looking up things. Yesterday, I was looking up price of sales uh, and return on equity. I understand those concepts, but I always need a refresher. So you, you can't oversimplify it for people. And don't take it for granted that everybody speaks the language of finance. Most people don't. Most people get, you know... Blur it over when they when you start talking finance at them. Speak to them like real people, uh, and you'll be able to build an audience. And you see that in some of the best financial bloggers out there, and some of the best journalists out there, the Jason Zweigs of the world, who write so cleanly um, that it, it, it's so simple. It's like Hemiway, but for finance and investing.
1: <laughs> I like that, um, and, and you know, too. You had mentioned you know Google, Search Curie, and all of those you know, more complicated tools to see what people are searching for. What are some simple ways that, you know, people who are just getting started, where can they go to find out like what people want to hear and what would be a good place to start in writing some content?
0: Well, I think it always starts with your expertise. Let's, what's your particular niche? What do you care about? Is it the law? Is it uh, financial planning for uh, millennials? Is it Helping people through divorce or whatever it is that you're a specialist in, make sure you're you're focused on that. But if you're looking up what you know the general public is is searching for, Google Trends is the easiest, freest place to start. That's free. You can just go to Google Trends right now and put in any keywords you want and see if anybody cares about it. You can see what the traffic is like. But if you want to get more advanced and get better tools like a like Semrush uh, that allows you to see you know who on the Google SERP the search engine. Uh, results page is beating you and who has the most backlinks and where the traction is and how you can go much deeper with which with much more intense uh, tools to help you as a digital publisher but you don't have to start there you can start with the very basics of i specialize in this topic i want to see what the trend the search trend traffic is i'm going to look up google trends i'm going to see who else is publishing around it and make sure i'm read it on what they're doing and then i'm going to find my angle that's unique and i'm going to put it out there and you know what i may even link to or or retweet some of those other other people who have written about this. So they notice what I'm doing and get myself into that virtuous cycle and conversation of whatever it is you're writing about.
1: How do you suggest we go about this collaboration process? Because I think a lot of times, you know, like the inner competitor of us comes out and we want to be better than everyone. But I think that's a a really tough path to go, especially when you're trying to, you know, make your voice heard in all this noise. So what are some tips you have just for Starting that collaboration process, or maybe even reaching out to a bigger site like Investopedia to start getting your content published there.
0: Sure. Well, we don't we don't just publish people's content. Uh, you know, who submit to us. We we commission all of our content, and if I want something very specific, um, you know, I'll reach out to that expert. So we're not a place for that per se. But but back to your original question: How do you get yourself into that mix, into that conversation with other publishers or, or other individuals who have some influence? You know, it's it's about generosity of spirit, but it's also about awareness of what they're doing. If you think you're the expert and you're just going to rock it out a a blog post or a tweet or a, a tweet storm, and get feel like everybody's going to pay attention because you think you're an expert, you're wrong. You have to be read in and appreciate what other people are doing and show them that you're aware of what they're up to and that you have something you want to contribute to the conversation or you learn something from some from something that they wrote uh, that you read that influenced the way you think about something. I'm constantly constantly being influenced by other people I read on on fin on financial twitter or in their newsletters or across other business journalism organizations and I'm constantly uh, linking to them or retweeting them or referring to them because I get inspiration from them they're smarter than I am in a lot of cases but they help me develop my own ideas and then they do that for me when I put something out um, they support me with a retweet with a link with a post, and it 's super gratifying, but it starts with a generosity of spirit and it starts with a generosity and an awareness of what other people are doing without that you 're just you know shouting into the wind
1: right and I think sometimes our you know our planner brain uh, being financial planners you know we 're like, okay, if we do this for this long, like then we 're going to have our breakthrough. Do you have any like guideline as to you know maybe just as you 've seen people progress through their career like what what time commitment it takes or how long you have to be doing a blog or, you know, a podcast before it really starts to gain traction.
0: I'm going to tell you the story of of a young man named Nick Majuli. Do you know Nick? I do. Yeah. Okay. Nick Majuli started, uh, he was working for a, I don't even think he was working for an RIA, but he started a blog called dollars and data. Dollars and data is a fantastic blog. That's just about interesting ways of thinking about money and investing with a lot of data visualization. Uh, Nick is tremendous data black belt and knows how to uh, rep- you know present it on on his blog and then write about it. really clean writing. He got the attention of the uh, the folks at Ritholtz Wealth Management, including Josh Brown and and Ben Carlson and Barry Ritholtz, of course. And they started uh, retweeting his blog and getting people to look at it. And eventually, they hired him to be on their research team. He's working there now. His audience has continued to grow, so it got him a better job quadrupled his audience. And he's one of the most influential bloggers out there because he started with a passion project uh, and he got other people to notice it because he was paying attention to what they did. He's the perfect example for what I've just described.
1: And I think it's just a world we live in, right? This digital age and web search, and people just wanting information. Uh, that media is going to be a part of our careers, whether we want it to be a big portion or a small portion of what we do every day. You know what? What does a career path look like in financial media or just media in general? If there might be people listening who, you know, really have a knack for writing a blog or want to, you know, be that face of a brand or, you know, just a specific topic?
0: It's a great question. And it's very different from when I got into the game in the late nineties. And I got into the game, as I mentioned, technically, I I was a cameraman. I knew how to shoot and edit that got me, uh, you know, an internship at a news organization. And then I became a producer and then an editorial supervisor and finally an editor in chief. So my path's very different. Um, then And it would be, be a very different path that I would choose today. And this is what I tell a lot of young people, whether they're thinking about going to journalism school or their financial planners thinking about trying to grow their, uh, their media presence, anybody that's trying to write a lot and, and, and build an audience. You have to specialize, obviously, as I mentioned. You have to be passionate about a topic and go super deep on that because uh, you know, that mile-long, inch-deep uh, knowledge is plentiful. There's plenty of that out there. What about going super deep on the subject? So you become the expert and somebody that people refer to. So I would start with that. And then if you can build that and not just want to be on TV as a commentator. It's very rare. It's like getting into the NBA to be a, a financial advisor like Josh Brown and be on TV every day, right? That, that doesn't happen you know, to about, anybody, about half of 1% of the population. So forget about that. But be passionate. Build your audience. And then... Eventually, people will start to notice you, and you will start to be, have the opportunity to contribute to podcasts like this, or start your own webinar, or um, speak at a conference. Put yourself out there as a particular expert on that subject matter. If you want to really get into journalism and you want to, you know, build a business journalism career, if you're in a already an advisor or planner or down that road you can do it but you have to specialize in a certain topic otherwise you're just like everybody else who wants to do it and i don't care how good looking you are or how great your hair is or how white your teeth are on tv you have to be an expert because expertise is valuable
1: you said you know you commission people out to do a particular article it makes you easily distinguishable easily distinguishable
0: as the person to go to in someone like your shoes right well, it took me a little while to get you know into the conversation where TV networks, business TV networks want to put me on or podcasts like you want to speak to me. And i started with writing every day. I write two newsletters every day of the week, right? So I'm writing constantly. Uh, I do columns every week. Um, I go on the radio 10, 20 times a week. It took me a while to build that audience, but now people think of me as that guy who's really good at explaining the macro economy or the stock market or what's happening in uh, with the CARES Act. I had to build that over time, but now, you know, that's been established. You know, I want to
1: hone in on some of your experience as an editor. Now, I'm sure you've seen your fair share of good and bad content. What are some of the easiest mistakes that we can avoid or simple changes in our writing style that we can implement to make sure we're putting out good content
0: on a regular basis? It's It's a great question one of the most important books i ever read and it was in journalism school is called on writing well on writing well it's a it's about 80 pages Uh, and that just really tells you all you need to know about that book because writing well is about writing the way you speak as long as you speak well we sometimes try to get a little too clever when we write we sometimes get a little too deep in our own thoughts and go off on tangents when we write are we being direct? Are we using run on sentences because we're trying to say too much and not focusing on our idea? You know, read your, read your copy to your, your partner or your kids. If your kids are old enough to appreciate it or, or a friend and just say, does this make any sense to you? Read it into a recorder and play it back and listen to yourself. I do that sometimes and I am shocked at how verbose I can be and how, what a mess I can make of the English language when I'm trying to say something simple, because I'm trying to be too clever. So on writing well is a great place to start, but record yourself and then make other people listen to you and they'll tell you if they if you trust them and they trust you exactly how they feel about the way you write and whether you're being clear enough.
1: Yeah, and I think that really, you know, keys in on focusing on what's essential and that goes back to what you had said about what are people actually looking for? And I do want to, you know, shift a little bit too because you had mentioned it, you know, how do you, after you start putting this content out there, How do you handle some of that review? You know, whether it's from your peers or from your audience, I, I, I'm guilty of it too. You know, like we're always afraid to post something because we think someone's going to tear it apart. Like, how do you get over that as a writer? And I mean, as an editor as
0: well, you get back in the ring. I write, like I said, two newsletters a day, they go out to about 500,000 people all over the world. My inbox after I send that out, uh, is, you know, I can get five, 10 emails a night. Or, or in the morning, after the morning one goes out, and I would say you know 80% of them are super complimentary or they're providing valuable feedback, and 20% of them just cut me to shreds. And sometimes I really deserve it, uh, but I learn from it. And you know what I do? I write back to every single reader who gives me feedback, good, bad, or ugly, and I thank them for the feedback. I thank them for the suggestion. If they take me apart, I will answer their question or show them where I got my information. Um, I want to have a dialogue with my readers and, and not assume that I know more than they do. I have very smart readers. We do on Investopedia, they're here. By nature, they're smart because they're coming to us to, to, to get even smarter. So I, I'm humble enough and, and appreciative of the feedback where I'll write back and I don't care how, how mean they are to me, I appreciate it. Have you seen some of that negative feedback change or influence
1: the way you, you write going forward? Or how do you process some of that you know, negative
0: critique? Absolutely. If I, if I don't learn from it, then I'm not doing my job as the editor, as the editor in chief, or, or even professionally, I want to get better. I'm, you know, I'm 23, 24 years in the game, uh, midway through my career, if not more, and I'm still trying to improve. I read some of the things I write, even my morning newsletter day. I'm ashamed of some of the words that, you know, some of the, the structure of the sentences that I put together. So there's that, but, but, um, know, you have to be humble and you have to continue to want to improve. And you look at the best writers out there, whether they're in business journalism or, or writers from history, and they approach it, you know, like, like their job, Norman Mailer would write uh, every day from, you know, eight to four, or he would read from 4am to 8am. And then he would write from eight to four, like it was his job.
1: I feel a lot of times we're in a very high barrier entry, you know, profession where people have to know, otherwise they don't feel uncomfortable. So how do you address that? in Investopedia
0: with those basic you know like those basic entry level articles one of our most popular articles believe it or not is called what is money right what is money that's a that's a very simple question but not really once you get into it and it's a very metaphysical question and i think we have readers some of them really wondering what is money, you know, for the first time, really asking themselves that question. And then we have other readers who are super sophisticated, thinking about things like cryptocurrency and the blockchain and asking about money and, and the difference between, you know, the, the tokenized world and the, the real world of legal tender, right? So there's a lot of nuance there in that piece. It's a very simple piece, but it does explain the difference between currencies and legal tender and what's backed by the government and what's not. So it's a simple concept. But a complicated explanation that we have to make very simple because we have that range of readers, right? Then we have something like what is PE ratio? Well, if you're wondering what PE ratio is, you're probably a new investor or you're starting, uh, you're in business school or you're starting to work for a bank or an investment bank. So you're looking up those financial terms because you want to put them to practice. We have a very basic explanation of PE ratio, then we have charts showing you how to look at it and how to evaluate it. We have comparisons of PE ratios over time for people that want to go deeper. So you have to have these layers. Think about different, you know, uh, floors in a building. The basics are on one and two, and then the more advanced stuff's on three and four, and then the super sophisticated steps on five and six. You want to make sure you're hitting all your, re- you're getting all your readers in that article because it's very popular, but you have to access them where they are.
1: How do you give that gentle nudge to your audience to say, like, you know, hey? you might need to go back and refresh on this, um, without making them feel stupid, because I feel like
0: no one wants to feel stupid. Right. I, I don't, maybe that's a bad question, but uh, I, I totally understand what you mean. I write and we write in the voice of the individual investor. That's who we're writing for. We're not writing for wall street. We're not writing for, you know, uh, uh, Nobel laureates, although they they come and read our site from time to time, we're writing for the individual investor, making sure that they have perspective. And finance and investing uh, is a very tricky topic. And there are new things and acronyms coming out every single day. So you can't take it for granted. I write those two newsletters in the voice of the individual investor. And I'm an individual investor with some experience and I get confused by it. So I don't never take it for granted that everybody is on the same level. And I don't mind simplifying it because at the end of the day, that's why people uh trust us and that's why people keep coming back to us please explain this to me make me help me make sense of this whether i want to make sense of it to tell my clients or making my own investing or finance decisions put it to me in simple terms uh so i can wrap my head around it and then i'll go make the right decision
1: you know financial literacy is such a problem in this country you know how does Investopedia view that like within your mission? And also, how does it apply to the, the broader profession You know, of, of us who are financial planners listening to this podcast?
0: Well, you asked that question at a very interesting time in the United States history. We, we believe that is our mission in life, financial literacy, helping people understand finance, investing, and in business so they can improve their lives, whether they're trying to save more, invest more for the future, plan for a life stage, whether it's having a child, going to college, sending a kid to college, that's our mission in life. That's what gets us up in the morning. We need it now more than ever. And we've been putting a lot of focus on making sure that it's available to people where they are at all levels of any race or any income class, because that's our responsibility. its I say we're 21 years old and we have some 23 million monthly visitors worldwide. That is um, a blessing for us, but it's also an amazing responsibility to live up to our mission of making sure that people can come to us and understand what they need to understand to make their decisions in life. So we, like I said, we put out content in all kinds of ways for all kinds of users. um, And we want to make sure that we are making, we are explaining things as clearly as we can to anybody looking to us to make sense of the world.
1: Yeah, and and you know so much of the news, you know, it has that clickbait. You know, like here's this catchy headline. You know, I paid off a hundred thousand dollars in student loans. Here's how I do it. But that doesn't really apply to most people. So, how do you have that filter where you know, like this is possible, but it's not necessarily likely? I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Well, we have a lot of articles on things like the lottery. Uh, we have a lot of articles on things like cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin. Right? There is no way. To, to fund to explain clearly, you know how the price of Bitcoin is going to change. It's just one of those things where it's very hard to explain. Um, same with the lottery. We have to give people the proper risk disclosures. People come to us to look up. About options or or naked options, super dangerous products in investing. We have to make sure we have the appropriate disclosures and make sure our readers understand that these are risky products, and you have to make sure you know what you're doing before you get in because you could lose a lot of money. So being upfront with our audience about those types of things is core to who we are, and not uh, you know, we we don't try to lure people in with you know this could be the next Amazon.com or how to retire at 35 with a million dollars. We may have our ar- article or two about retiring young. Um, which is not impossible for some people, but we want to make sure we're being very clear about how difficult it is and what you need to do to even understand that concept. That's
1: where, you know, people who are just getting started, if you want to go deep on a specific topic, like you had, you know, recommended, how do we go about, you know, like referencing back to your site and, you know, maybe shortening our articles by letting you do some of the heavy lifting on that initial education?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Well, people do that all the time. So if you're, if you're writing something and you don't want to write out a long complicated expression uh, explanation of um, you know margin growth or the peg ratio feel free to link to us people do it all the time and it's probably good for you to, to link out to influential sites so your users know that you're working with trustworthy brands and trustworthy sources uh, we do the same thing when we sort uh, when we cite a financial advisor like we often do or or we hold a webinar with advisors, like we often do. We always cite their practice, so we, people, our readers and our our attendees, know that we're working with experts, and we we want to flaunt that credibility. Um, so that kind of linking is exactly what you should be doing. And we also have what we call uh, you know source notes that are like footnotes on our articles too. If we want if people want to see the original sources. A lot of people, you know, people that don't know us well think we're very similar to Wikipedia, and we. We are similar in that we have a lot of information and it's organized well. Wikipedia is crowdsourced, but what they're very good at is documenting with the footnotes where the information came from. Right, wrong, or different—that's a very good practice, and that's why Wikipedia results show up very frequently uh, in search. But because they're very good, the contributors to those Wikipedia pages about showing the documentation and and the. The path to find the original source documents. We've been doing that for several years as well, and it's very effective, especially in finance, because you have to have the original documents to have that credibility.
1: That's a really good point. You know, it's like bibliography in those high school papers that you always had to write. Um, you know, it, it just lends the fact that you don't know everything, and you're you're giving credit to someone else who does know a lot about. What you might not know a ton about am i right in that thinking
0: absolutely yeah you have to you have to attribute it's the right thing to do journalistically it's also good practice as a publisher to show people that you're linking to authoritative sites and associate yourself with them and then sometimes those sites will see who's backlinking to them and they may want to backlink to you i look at who backlinks to investopedia every day and sometimes i'm completely fascinated by it i'm shocked by it um and sometimes it's it's funny we we have a lot of sites all over the world that are referring to us. And, and that's a good thing uh, as long as they're doing it in, in good practice. So, you know, I think I, I'm a big believer in that. And attribution is more important now than ever with people doubting the credibility of what they're reading on the internet.
1: Yeah. And, I, and that's a huge piece of the media today, right? Like there's just this fog of misinformation. You can be on one site reading about the same topic, go to another site and hear two completely different views. How do you deal with that at Investopedia?
0: Well, we, we do not get political, except when politics crosses into finance and investing. And it has done that a lot lately. So, But we're not trying to influence the conversation on the political front. We are trying to explain the world to investors or, or just folks who are just trying to make money decisions. So by be, by taking the educational angle, and really that's what we live by, we do news through an educational lens, right? We do explainers of news events through an educational lens because at the end of the day, people just want to understand it and make up their own mind about it. We're not trying to make up anybody else's mind. We're just trying to give them the, the foundation and the information so they can make up their own mind and they'll get to it uh, eventually. We know that. Um, so that's how we do it. And, and there's a lot of, you know, being a, a news publisher or, or a, a reference content and educational publisher like we are, you're defined by what you cover naturally but you're also defined by what you don't cover. So you have to have that prism up of what fits into the Investopedia voice. What should we be talking about today? And what shouldn't we be talking about today? Those decisions define you and eventually give you your voice.
1: Would you say then, you know, you tend to avoid most opinion-based responses just because I I think it's fascinating and you see this all the time on social media, you know, like everyone thinks their opinion's right, but the fact that it's an opinion makes it partially incorrect. So do you just try to avoid do you try to avoid the opinion-based responses to news events?
0: Unless I'm working with a columnist that may be an expertise on the subject, but typically that opinion is about something like the, the economic cycle or recessions or you know what's the next 10 years going to look like, which is very different than um, the United States should not have escalated the trade war with China op-ed by pick your contributor. We don't do that. There's plenty of that going out out there in the world, and our readers tell us that they don't want that from us. They come to us to learn. And we, if we tried, it, and we have tried things like that in the past, and our readers are very quick to tell us that's not the lane they want us to be in. And we're not here to do exactly what they want, but we want to make sure that we are a reliable, trustworthy uh, island in the stormy sea that they can come to to make sure they're getting education and not trying to be influenced by our opinion or the opinion of columnists and writers that don't represent where we come from
1: that lends itself to, you know, this concept of decision fatigue, where when you, when you lead with those opinions, rather than just factual statements, like, here's what this is, here's why it matters. It, it makes people confused. Am I right in that thinking?
0: Yeah. And there's so much of that out there. You know, opinions are like belly buttons. Everyone's got one. Um, (laughs) So there's a lot of them out there. there's a lot of, you know, people putting that out there every day across social media platforms and websites. And we don't have to do that. And in fact, it's refreshing to not feel like we have to do that and knowing what our responsibility is and owning that responsibility. As I said, it's, it's a blessing that we have this many readers and, and we've been around so long, but it's also an enormous responsibility and we take it seriously and it helps guide us on the way we cover things because we know why we're, we're trusted by our readers. One final
1: question for you, Caleb. You know, if I'm sitting here as a new financial planner today, why should I be involved in you know creating financial media or you know putting my my thoughts out there and my expertise out there for the world to see?
0: I think it's ultimately about helping you develop your expertise because the more you put that out there, the more it refines your point of view. If you look at any of the successful uh, young financial bloggers who have built, uh, nice little franchises around them. It came from that 10,000 hour rule. Got to write every day. Got to get my point of view out there every day. Got to read other people every day. So it helps them do. It helps you do that. And you could take that point of view and use it in your practice. But you can also use it as a marketing tool. So we've seen this across some of the most successful financial planners. I mentioned the Josh Browns of the world, but there's also the Michael Kitsis of the world, who's built an entire franchise for himself and and promoted XYZ Planning and and his other businesses. Because he's been a, a a voice in the industry, use it as a way to market your practice, market your expertise to get that earned media on television, on radio, on blogs, on podcasts like this, and also to help you hone your voice and your point of view as a professional. That's what's going to attract you, those customers, and get you those referrals. That's my recommendation. You can totally go through your career with never doing it. But you're going to need some sort of marketing engine and this is kind of a free one although it does require some effort and some focus
1: the big point there too is we have to learn this stuff anyway so why not write about it right
0: absolutely absolutely writing every day even if it's 300 words uh, is good practice. you got to get that muscle memory going. Got to get in the writing gym every single day. And you'd be surprised how sometimes it just flows. And then sometimes you just want to hit yourself over the head because uh, it's not coming out. But just make yourself do it.
2: Solving for retirement longevity can be exceptionally challenging. Yet home equity is often overlooked. Don't leave your client's largest asset dormant. It could be the missing piece of the puzzle. Finance of America Reverse is the number one wholesale reverse mortgage lender and leader in home equity product innovation. They've partnered with the FBA to help advisors integrate the strategic utilization of housing wealth for better client outcomes and to provide tools for getting to work on retirement with a truly comprehensive plan. For the official FBA reverse mortgage course, one-on-one consultations, or insights on retirement trends, sign up at yourretirementstrategies.com. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate
1: planners like you.
2: Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.